We're continuing in the book of Romans, and let's pause and pray before we get started. Father, as we continue in your scriptures, Lord, may our hearts be open to receive all the things that you would speak to us. Lord, may we give you our attention, and through all the information, may you draw us nearer to the truth of who you are and what you are desiring to do in our lives. Bless our time here, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to cover Romans chapter 3, verses, Romans, make sure I can spell, Romans 3, 21 to 31 tonight, okay. And again, to set the foundation, because we are covering, in this portion, and actually it goes on in chapter 4 through 25 as well, he's really touching on another He's been building up a theme, and just to review real quickly again, we have the timeline, God the Creator. Remember, God is dynamic. He is the God who created them and is involved with the creation. He is the God who holds the creation accountable to himself. And this God who created the heavens and the earth, we got our timeline here, made a covenant with Abraham. This is after the fall. God made a covenant with Abraham. God said, I am going to use you to bless the world. Remember this, because this is what we're going to be talking about here, that the covenant is how God chose to deal with the fall. I'm going to put right here the fall. Okay, so the fall of mankind, God was going to use the covenant the agreement he made with Abraham to deal with the fall, the separation that took place. How was he going to use the covenant? Well, remember, he told Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And through through his people, he then gave the law, the Torah. The law of God was there to now give instruction how they were to live so that this people could be the light to the world. And the idea was that because of them, all the nations were going to be blessed and it was going to bring the end of all things, which is going to be the renewal of all things. And so God was going to use the nation to bless the world and through them he was going to renew all things. But... What happened? The nation of Israel didn't do their job, right? They couldn't fulfill their job, and so God had to deal with the nation of Israel because of their sin, because of their disobedience, specifically because of their idolatry and because of their immorality. And so here we have exile. They found themselves in exile. Over and over again, through the Babylonians, through the Persians, through the Egyptians, through, at the time, Paul is writing through the Romans. And so there is this exile because of their inability to fulfill their part. And so what they had been waiting for to come to the renewal could not take place while they were still in exile. In other words, if they are in exile, God cannot use them to bring the renewal because they are in the position of sin. And what Paul has been saying is that this fulfillment didn't take place here. It actually takes place 
at the cross in Jesus, which is what we are starting with here. Notice in verse 21, it starts off, but now. This fulfillment that was supposed to be happening at the end of ages, they thought, is happening now because of the person of Jesus Christ. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be revealed by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just the one, just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Remember, if we keep this narrative in mind that God has worked through this covenant, and the idea of a covenant is the bottom line of this whole epistle, and then to help us understand the covenant, he uses the metaphor of the law. So the law court, actually, is being built to help us understand the covenant that God is building here, okay? And if we don't keep this in mind, this narrative falls apart. And so a lot of people will talk about Romans 3, the end of this, as being the idea that, well, you know, everyone in the world has sinned. But then you get to like verse 29, where he talks about, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Why is he bringing that in? Or why does he bring in this Jew and Gentile understanding? And it seems to be like he's just talking, uh, well, I just want you to know he's including them. And then in chapter 4, when he uses Abraham, well, he's just using Abraham to bring an example to the fact that everyone sinned and he's now an example of faith. But really, this idea of the covenant ties these two chapters together and ties verse 29 and all this together. Because what Paul is really trying to do is help us see that what God has promised all along, he has completed in the person of Jesus. And that is not just for the Jew, but it is also for the Gentile. Okay, and we got to keep that narrative in mind. Because Abraham simply becomes an example otherwise and really... Chapter 4, I won't get into it too much, but Genesis 15 
is a chapter where God dealt specifically with the covenant. And so in chapter 4, where Paul uses this example, he's not just using Abraham as an example of faith, he's using the example of the covenant God made with Abraham as the example. And so it's really important to understand that. And so we don't see just this portion as Paul talking about just being justified by faith, and then chapter 4 is an example. We should see them integrated. This is how the covenant is fulfilled, how the sin of the world is dealt with through the faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. So if God is going to deal with the sin through the covenant, how is he going to fulfill that? He's going to do that through the faithful Israelite, Jesus. And it's important that we see that because as he says, apart from the law, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Not because of the law, but apart from the law. When we talk about Torah, we're talking about the Jewish nationality, their identity. God gave the Hebrew people the law. Remember earlier, how can then those who did not have Torah keep what the Torah says? And so he's bringing that back to mind. We just got a hint of it earlier in chapter 2, and now Paul is building on that chapter. How can God use people who didn't have the law to be people who are examples? Well, was it apart from the law that the righteousness of God has been made known? to which the law and the prophets testify. And so he's saying, well, God is going to fulfill his covenant, but it's not going to be through the law. It's not going to be through these people, but the law and the prophets testify of what God was going to do. And so he's not excluding Israel. He's very careful in his language to include the nation of Israel and how he is going to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham through the person of Jesus. Okay, He's not, and he never does, exclude the nation of Israel. They are always a part of that. And he's very careful here to include them in this. Apart from the Torah, those who didn't have the law, are still included. They are still understanding. Apart from now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Now, here it's very important that we talk about the righteousness of God. And we mentioned this earlier. It's not the righteousness that comes from God. It's the righteousness that God has himself. This is God's righteousness, God's faithfulness to keep his covenant with Abraham. By God's righteousness, the, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been made known. How has it been made known? To which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith. Now, a lot of your translations will say through faith in Christ. It's actually the faith of Jesus Christ. And here's why it's important that we distinguish these things. Because if it is the faith that we have in Christ, then what do we do with this distinguishment that he brings here between the Jew and the Gentile? Why has that come up? But if it's faith because of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, then we're going to see that it flows really very well. You see, Remember in the last chapter, verse 19, he says, every mouth will be silenced. He was dealing with the idea of the law court. And remember, 
In a court of law, there is the judge. Okay, in this case, the judge is God. And then you have the plaintiff and the defendant. And the judge says, okay, I rule in your favor, whichever way it goes. I find you to be in the right and I find you to be in the wrong. And so when the judge finds the the case in your favor, he is then declaring you right. He's declaring you as righteous. Okay? He is justifying you. And this is the idea of justification, is God is making you right because of his declaration on your behalf. And it's important that we understand this. God is the one who does this. Well, how was God present them righteous? The verdict in the last day was going to be how God declared the nation of Israel right. You see, because you've been given my covenant, because the Torah has been given to you, because you obeyed it, in the end, I was going to declare you my people. How? By raising you from the dead and by proving myself your God and bringing everything under me. That would be my declaration. I'm God. You're my people. You are now justified because I have brought you back from the dead. Remember the Ezekiel metaphor. I will raise the people. Well, God raised up Israel from the dead through the person Jesus, the righteous Israelite. And it's important because God is not off the hook here. God doesn't just say, well, everyone's sinned, but I'm going to bring this sinless guy and he's going to die for everyone, so everyone's going to be okay. No, God, you made a promise to Abraham. You said through him you were going to bless all the nations. How are you going to fulfill your promise when the people are in exile and aren't doing what they're supposed to do? How can the nations of the earth be blessed if they are not your people living in your light, in your truth, out of exile? How can that happen? And so God has got to judge in their favor. Well, how can I judge in your favor if you're still in exile? You can't. And so the righteousness of God, who God is, accomplishing what is going to be done, is done through Jesus right now, in the present works. In the present time, God has revealed his own righteousness. He's done it at this time. He says it again in verse 26, at the present time. See, Israel had been unfaithful with dealing with the sin of the world, and so being the light of the world, they couldn't be that example. And what was needed was not a different covenant, but a faithful Israelite. Thus, the faithfulness of Jesus is required, and that's what's being talked about. Not faith in Christ, but the faithfulness of Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Israel is now finding the faithfulness of Jesus. The judge finds you righteous, he justifies you. It's not the same righteousness as the judge. Paul's idea of justification, and this is going to be a strange thing for some of you, but Paul's idea for justification is never that God gives us his righteousness. We aren't imputed with the same righteousness that God has. What we are do, what we happens to us is we are given God's Verdict that we are righteous because of the righteous 
Christ. And the first thing you've got to ask yourself is, well, what difference does it make to you? If you're declared righteous from God, by God, that's all that matters. But here's the difference it makes, at least in my understanding. You see, when people say, well, I am now the righteousness of God. I am just as righteous as God himself. I will think, no, you're not, because I know you. And I know that you do things that aren't righteous. But if you've been declared righteous by God, then even when you do things that aren't righteous, God can still see you as being justified. Does that make sense? In other words, the verdict is in your favor, but it's not just because of who you are. You don't have that quality that God has. And the judge doesn't need the same to give that same status to those that's not applicable. All the plaintiff or the defendant needs to know is that the judge rules in my favor, and so I'm right before the judge. I'm right before the court. I am right in the court's eyes. Therefore, I'm justified. I am seen as being accomplished. It's done in my favor. And so the justification by faith that Paul talks about is the idea of the judge, the plaintiff. And what he's doing here is helping us to understand, again, the covenant that God made. God is the judge. He has made an agreement, and he's going to fulfill that agreement and judge in our favor because of the faithfulness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so it's not because God gives me his righteousness. It's because God found Jesus faithful, him righteous, and he is the one who now deals with us so that the judgment goes in our favor. The righteousness of the judge that he is dealing with in the case of the law, he's impartial, he's helping the helpless, and he's also punishing evil. That's the responsibility of the judge. The justification of God and of God's true people are both important, but they are not the same. The doctrine of justification in Paul does not consist of or imagine Paul saying that God imparts or reckons or gives his people God's own righteousness. Now, I know you've probably heard that. I've heard that. It doesn't really make a difference to us. If God finds us as justified, then that's what matters. But it does matter so that we understand who God is and who we are and the part that Jesus played. Because it's very important that we see that it was the faithfulness and the righteousness of Jesus that is then to all who believe and not just to a certain point. And so in chapter or in chapter 3 verse 23 it says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He just said there's no difference between Jew nor Gentile and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? So this isn't just a declaration that everyone in the world is sinning or has sinned. It's really a recap of everything that he said in from chapter 118 to 320 that Jew and Gentile alike They're all in Adam. They're all in the state of exile. They're all in a condition of needing help. Yeah, we have all sinned, but we are all in Adam's position. Adam lost the glory of God. What was the glory of God that Adam lost? They believe it was his dominion over all the earth. He was supposed to rule over the earth. Israel was then meant to be stewards of the world. They were meant to fulfill that position. 
but they have lost it by worshiping the creature rather than the creator, which we talked about in the first chapter. And so what's going to happen when the glory gets restored? We'll see that in chapter 5. He's building his case. He's building the case of Israel in Adam and then the second Adam, Jesus, is going to fulfill those things. And so this is real important that we recognize that all have sinned. He's talking about the Jewish people, he's talking about the Gentile people, and he's talking about the position that each of them held. It's not just a declaration that the whole world is under sin, but God is recognizing the condition of the Jews and the condition of the Gentiles in this position of exile. And so in verse 24, he goes on, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And this is why it's so important that it is the righteousness of Jesus and not righteousness given by Jesus because it keeps pointing us to who Jesus is. Do you see how it's just kind of flowing with the righteousness of Jesus And it's in Jesus that these things happen. They, who is the they that are talking about? Well, it's the Jew and the Gentile. And all, that all, who was it? It's the Jew and the Gentile. And it's not just some, it's all are freely justified by the grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus. Freely by his grace shall the people of God, it's a gift, And the idea through the redemption is important here because our idea of redemption is that of a slave market and you buy a slave and now they're free from that slavery. But in the Hebrew mind, the idea here of redemption would take them all the way back to Egypt. It would take them back to Egypt where God delivered them. And interesting enough, Genesis chapter 15, where God makes the covenant with Abraham, is also where God tells him that he is going to deliver them from a foreign nation. It's a prophetic that God was going to deliver them. And in that prophecy, then we start to see the Passover. The Passover is that idea of God came down, delivered us from this people. We were redeemed. And so again, remember who Paul's talking to. He's talking to Jewish Christians and they would have in their mindset not the Gentile idea of redemption, but the Jewish idea, which is going to be Egypt, being taken out of Egypt, God dealing with us while we were there, rescuing us from there. And so that metaphor is really important that we see. He redeemed them by coming down, fulfilling the covenant that he made with Abraham that he talked about in Genesis 15, which we're going to talk about more next week. And and so it's real important that we see that Genesis 15 is very much a part of Romans chapter 3 and 4. It's the idea of redemption and it's the idea of the covenant. And Paul is trying to get them to see the importance of these things. And in the covenant with the Jewish people and the redemption, we have the Passover and we have the blood. And so we're going to get to that later on, but we know that that's pointing to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Passover. And so as Paul is talking to these Roman believers, he's wanting to show them that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham 
just like he promised in Genesis chapter 15. He delivered them from exile from the land of Egypt. He gave them the law, but even though you find yourself still in exile, God has fulfilled the promise, brought you back from the dead through the person of Jesus, but not you alone. That apart from the Torah, God had done this, and apart from the Torah, God is doing this with the Gentile people as well, that he is finding them not guilty. He is justifying them based on his agreement, this idea of the judge, just like he is you, because you weren't made right with God because you kept this law. You were made right with God because he kept the covenant. Why can't he keep that agreement with these Gentile people if they find themselves keeping the law of the heart, which is what he's going to go on to see. You guys tracking with me? Okay. I know it's a little different. Okay. In verse 27 to 31, basically it's the results, and he's kind of tying these things in. You know, the, the summary of 21 through 26 is that Jesus' sacrifice death is the focus and the climax of the covenant plan that the sacrifice of Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant. That's the whole point of those first verses there. A plan which was always for God's own use. And that's important because it was for God's purpose that in Jesus the true covenant, the self-offering, would be made. And that is the true offering of Israel. It's important that we see that God intended this all along. It's God's self-offering. It wasn't to be the offering just of bulls and goats. It was to be God's own offering. And he'll talk about that further in chapter 5. You see, in matters of love, you don't send a prophet. In matters of love, you don't sacrifice something else for someone else. In other words, I I don't take something that belongs to you and offer it for them. It has to be something from me. And an offering of love has to come from yourself. And so in matters of love, God doesn't send a prophet. God comes himself and fulfills this. And that was God's intention all along, that God would fulfill the covenant himself. And so he is pointing us to the importance of this, that it was Jesus. This is the true offering of Israel. But it also, of course, shows us that Jesus is the true human self-offering as well. And so God's going to cover both sides of this covenant. He's going to cover his part as God, and he's going to cover the descendant of Abraham's part with Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. Pretty tricky how he does that. And it's pretty cool because he's fulfilling his promise as God and he's fulfilling his promise to Abraham by stepping in and saying, I'll take care of it. And it's really a beautiful picture of what God does by stepping in and fulfilling this promise. And so in verses 27 to 31, again, the basic result of the action that God did. And he says that there is no boasting. Verse 27, where then is the boasting? You you can't be boasting. What's there to boast about? 
Okay, boasting of the Jew is excluded because of the gospel. It is shut out, it's excluded, and that's what it means. Why? Because it's his righteousness, verse 22, at the present time. All who have faith in Jesus. See how it's important that it's his righteousness that we're talking about? It's not a righteousness he gives, it's all about his righteousness. It's about his faithfulness. It's about what he's done, so we can't boast. The door is shut, and that's the idea of it's excluded. And it's almost like it's shut out. It just slams with an exclamation point. The boasting, it's done with. You, you can't boast. There's no reason for you to boast. And, and oftentimes what we do in the Protestant world is we think, well, we can't boast because of moral self-effort. You know, we can't boast because we're not good enough. You can't pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps and make yourself good enough. And so we think of that as boasting. We can't boast because we're not good enough to boast. But really what he's talking about here isn't the moral boasting. Paul is speaking of the boast of the Jews that says, because I am Born of Abraham's seed, I am a part of the covenant of God. Because I have Torah, I have an inside track to God in his favor. I, because of my vocation to be the light of the world, am automatically superior to you. In other words, because of all these things that were promised, I am or have a reason to boast. It's really dealing with the national ethnicity. Because I'm an Israelite, I'm better. And so I have a right to boast. He goes, no, you're in exile. You can't boast. God took it on himself in the righteousness of the one Israelite. You are excluded from that boasting. Now, fast forward to our time in the idea of boasting. We can't boast. Can anyone here say they are better than anyone else? No. What do you have to boast about? I am better because of what? No, what Jesus has done has covered us. It's the righteousness of Jesus. It's not my righteousness. It never was. And so we have no reason to boast. And anytime we come across as thinking of ourselves better than someone else, we are betraying the truth of what Jesus has done. We are claiming some part of that, and we can't. We can't boast in those things. Without the cross, Gentile Christians would still have ended up as second-class citizens because the Jews, the Jewish Christians would say, well, you can come along, but we have the rights of Abraham and the Torah. If it wasn't for the cross... The cross nullifies their right to boast. And that's what the debate was in Acts chapter 15 and in Galatians chapter 2, that you don't have a right to separate yourself from them. They are no less, not anything less than you are. And remember that interesting thing, that the covenant was brought together by eating together. We can eat together. Why? Because you are the same. God has made a new humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. And so as far as we know, there were no people at the time of Paul when he was writing this trying to make themselves morally superior, at least the Gentile world. The Christian Protestant world has kind of brought that idea of boasting being a moral boast. But as far as we know, it was always because of the ethnicity of the Jewish people. 
And again, we want to keep context what Paul is saying. So at this stage, the issue is one of race and ethnicity. And the proof of this actually takes place in verse 29 when he says, or is God the God of the Jews only? See, he keeps bringing this Jewish-Gentile thing back. And we need to remember this because then when we get to chapters 9 and 11, it's going to be real important because that's where it comes to the head. He's still unfolding that flower, trying to get us to understand more and more. But if we don't recognize the ethnicity aspect and the tension that was taking place between the Jews and the Gentiles, we will miss the point of Paul's argument. And we'll go to our own exclusion and have our own ideas and how things are saying. And so... The works of the law are excluded. What were the works of the law for a Jewish person? If they're excluded because of the law, what were the works of the law? The law that requires works. What were those works? Again, we think of moral works. We think of, well, shall not commit adultery, shall not commit murder, those kinds of things. But the works of the law in the Hebrew mind were very unique and very described. They were the things that the Torah prescribed that marked out the Jews different from the other pagan nations. See, other pagan nations have laws against murder. So that wasn't it. There were three things that primarily were establishing the rights of the law or the justification things that the law required. The first one was circumcision. Okay, Every Jew and Gentile knew the difference in what it meant to be circumcised. I don't need to go into detail. It's obvious. Okay, But that was one of the things that set them apart from all the nations. It's one of the things the other nations ridiculed them about. And so that was one of the things, the works of the law. The first one, circumcision. The second one was the Sabbath. The Jews were unique in keeping the Sabbath. In fact, they were ridiculed again by Rome because the Sabbath was a day off. When a person would convert to Judaism, when they'd proselytize them, they would make fun of them. Just, you're just trying to get a day off. So they would ridicule them. Why are you taking a day off? You're being lazy. You're, you're ceasing to do that. But remember, we talked about that in Genesis. The day off was to tell them, I'm not here just for work. I'm here for God. My life is more than just what I do. My life is whose image I'm created in. And so circumcision, the Sabbath. And then the third one was the purity laws. And by the purity laws, this is supposed to be number two. Number three, the purity laws were the laws that dealt with the food, Um, the kosher laws, uh, dietary laws, what and how you ate and how you prepared the food. And so the works of the law that it's talking about here, where is the boasting? Because you're excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works. You require to be circumcised, to keep the Sabbath, to maintain these dietary laws. And so that's the laws that Paul is specifically speaking of because those are the laws that the Jews would identify themselves that separate them from the other nations. So it's really important that we understand the things that he's talking about. Because remember in chapter 2, the true covenant people are those who do fulfill the law, even though they don't possess Torah. So remember we talked that we were going to get to there. We're getting there slowly. We're still getting there, chapter 5. It's hard not to just 
tell it because we don't like to wait. We want to tell me what he's saying, Paul. Well, I'll tell you in three chapters. No, tell me now. But what he's telling us is those things of the law. What happens when the person who doesn't have Torah still does the things that are right? And what would the Jewish person at the time of Paul's writing give as a summary of the law, the Torah? Jesus told us. What is the most important thing? He would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus added, And you will love your neighbor as yourself. That fulfills all. That would be the summary of the law. And so what do you do when you have someone who doesn't have Torah but has the law in their heart? They don't have the circumcision, the Sabbath keeping, or the dietary laws, but they still love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have what God was intending all along. And so the true covenant people are those who do fulfill the law even though they don't possess it ancestrally. Even though they're not circumcised, it is fulfilled in their faith. They are fulfilling the law of God by having faith in the faithful Israelite Jesus. And that faithful... Israelite, having trust in him, the judge says, you're not guilty because you will trust the verdict that was passed on to him. And so now we're being brought into this family. What family is it? Is it the family of Abraham? Well, yes and no. Yes, because God gave the covenant, fulfilled it through Abraham. No, because it's not ancestrally through the Torah, but it's through God's promise through Jesus. And so we are brought into this new family, this new humanity. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. And Paul is building up the question of this faith and he's going to build it up until chapters 8 and 10. And somehow, Christian faith is the true fulfillment of the law. How is that going to happen? How is faith in Jesus going to be the true fulfillment of the law? Again, we're just getting there. It's building up, but I wanted to build up as much as I could and help us to see. And so he says, is there boasting? No, it's excluded because of the law. The law requires works. No, because of the law that requires faith. Literally, the law of faith. And so there's a law of works, circumcision, Sabbath, purity laws, and there is the law of faith, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, trust in God and believe in him. And so it is the law of faith. And he says, for we maintain that a person, maintain, it's we reckon, literally. And it's a mathematical term. The true covenant people are those who do fulfill the law even though they do not possess it. Justification is an eschatological doctrine. Okay, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. A person is going to be a part of the new creation but not by this. Not by keeping these laws of circumcision, of Sabbath, of Torah. A person is going to be justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
And again, we need to understand the idea of justification is taking us to the end time in the Jewish mind. It's when God sets us right. It's when we see that we really were God's people. It's when God vindicates us, shows the world that he was with us all along. Well, justification, when did it happen? It didn't happen at the end. It didn't happen. We're still in exile. It happened in Jesus. And as it happens in Jesus, we recognize that it involved raising him from the dead, bringing back from exile so to speak. Jesus was raised from the dead just like they were supposed to be raised from the dead. He brought through him and in him the true people. He was the true creator of the world. God has not brought the future verdict present in the moment, first and foremost, that Jesus is the resurrection, but also because of Jesus that he is the Messiah, it is through the faithfulness of all who belong to this new family who live under this new king. Let me try and say that clearly because I confused myself. Okay, God is going to raise up his people from the dead by raising up the person from the dead, Jesus. Okay, and so now everyone who's a part of this new family is a partaker of the promise that God has for all of us, for the world to come, the resurrection, so that when we live under the rule of God, God says to that person that you're now part of my covenant family, you're part of this new family that God has given to us. So justification by faith is the doctrine that says... Right now, in this present age, we have the rights as this eschatology declared, this eschatological people. In other words, the promise of God is taking place right now. And that's why he says at the beginning of this chapter, but now. And that's why he says at this present time. He's not just saying that because I'm just talking to you right now. He's saying that right now, at this time, what you've been waiting for has happened in the person of Jesus. The justification is there. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, marked solely by the gospel, we become one in Christ. And so he's tearing down that ethnicity border that is blocking them. And let's face it, most of the problems are still dealing with ethnicity. Even in the church today, it has a lot to do with the problems that we're having. This isn't only the foundation for every individual Christian and our assurance that it doesn't depend on our moral background. It doesn't depend on our royalty or ethnicity. It's when I heard the gospel, I found myself grasped by it and believing it. In other words, the Holy Spirit used this message, the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus is Lord. When I heard the gospel, I was drawn to it by the Spirit of God and I became part of the family of God. And by being a part of this family of God, I am justified. That means I am right before God that will take me all the way into the presence of God. Believing it, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice that it is the doctrine which say that Christians of all time, race, and background belong to the same family, the same table. We are the same people. Even though you're Jew, and even though I'm Italian or 
Hispanic or Irish or whatever it is. Even though we are different nationalities, we are the same people because of what Jesus has done. And in verse 30, he brings this, or in verse 29, he says, Are God the God of the Jews only? Why would he say that after all this talking about being justified by faith? Why does he say, Is he the God of the Jews only? He's dealing with the covenant. He always is. Is he? No. He is not the God of the Gentiles too. Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since then there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith? He's going to justify them who? Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles. He will justify the circumcised and the uncircumcised through the same faith. The same faith in the faithful one, the just one, Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. We uphold the true meaning of what the law intended. What is the law? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, Jeremiah said, I will write my law on their hearts. How does God write his law on our hearts? By us loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. By us putting our trust in God with all our lives, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. By us recognizing what God has done for us, kept his promise through the person of Jesus. And so the justification by faith, what it means is that God has ruled in our favor because he has kept his promise and fulfilled it through Jesus. Therefore, we have the right to stand before him as vindicated. I'm not condemned in spite of the things I did. Why not? Because God has ruled in my favor. How did he rule in my favor? He passed the judgment. The judgment didn't go on to me. It went on to Jesus because he was the faithful one. It wasn't that he was just the only one who didn't sin, and so God says, oh, well, you didn't sin, I'll sacrifice you for the whole world. No, that's not right. It's no, you fulfill the need of my covenant and my promise. And because you fulfill that, I am going to offer you as the sacrifice, that Passover. But it's deeper than that. I'm not offering you I will become you, offer myself as the sacrifice and fulfill the promise that I made. Because you could not keep it, I will. Because you were faithless, I will be faithful. And if you will trust in me, I will put that law on your heart and it will justify you and bring you to the end before me and the seed of God and the justification of God. So that's verses 21 through 31. Any thoughts or questions? No questions? I've got questions myself. How can you not have questions? No? What I really wanted you to understand most importantly here is what the justification by faith means. And what faith in Jesus, how that ties in.
the righteousness of God that is given to us isn't that we are just righteous as God. It's that God has vindicated us because of Jesus. And that's maybe different than what you've heard before. My question to you, why does it matter? Should it? Does it matter? Well, no, I've got to be the righteousness of God. Why do you have to be that? Why can't you just be considered justified because God has given the verdict in your favor? Isn't God's verdict enough? What is it that requires you to have that nature? Because you don't. And that just makes so much sense to me because I know a lot of people and none of them seem that righteous in their nature. No questions? Did I utterly bore you guys to death? No? Okay. Okay. This is, I know this is different than our usual study, and so it's different for me, too. I find myself worrying, thinking, I'm, oh, no. <laughs> well, then let's pray, and then we'll eat dessert. Okay? Father, as we, again, have gone over these passages, Lord, help us to remember you're, you're taking us somewhere. You're leading us to a place where we have more and more confidence in you. You're, you're leading us to a place where we can, again, say that all things work together for the good to those who love you and those who are the called according to your purpose. We have a future that you are leading us to. And the whole idea of being justified has in mind this eschatology, this end times where you are now seeing us as right before you and that is something that will continue forever. And so help us to hold on to these truths and recognize, Lord, the the differences that can keep us from error, the subtle things that help keep us from making assumptions that really aren't in these passages, that you're not trying to say and help us to keep in the just the flow of what Paul was trying to say here. And I know it's hard as we break it up into certain portion, portions to keep that continuity, but help us to keep it flowing so that we understand fully and clearly what he was trying to say, what you were trying to say through him to us. Bless our time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.